This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Clive Gillinson, the Executive and Artistic Director of Carnegie Hall in New York City. Clive's work developing artistic concepts for presentations in Carnegie's three halls is a prime example of how to balance the traditions of an iconic, historic institution while building on those traditions to bring the greatest benefit to the most number of people. Clive assumed the role of director in July of 2005 and has since had a profound impact on the Hall's range of productions and partnerships. He oversees the management of all aspects of Carnegie Hall, including strategic and artistic planning, resource development, education and finance. He advocates that art should be central to society and accessible to all, spurring him to develop a number of innovative and unprecedented programs. Clive is a musician by training, having played cello in the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain as a child. He later attended London University to study mathematics, but realized that music was his calling and enrolled in the Royal Academy of Music, where he gained a recital diploma and won the top cello prize. He became a member of London's Philharmonia Orchestra and then joined the London Symphony Orchestra cello section. Six years later, he was elected to the board of directors of the self-governing orchestra, also serving as finance director, and he worked his way up to the position of its managing director. He was awarded the Commander of the British Empire in the 1999 New Year's Honors List and received the 2004 Making Music Sir Charles Grove Prize for his outstanding contribution to British music. He was also appointed Knight Bachelor in the Queen's Birthday Honors List in 2005, making him the only orchestra manager ever to be honored with a knighthood. He holds an honorary doctorate from the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, among many other distinctions. Clive, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Great to talk to you. You were born in India to a cellist mother and a businessman father who also wrote and painted. You later moved to the UK for your studies and the beginning of your career in music. Can you pinpoint certain aspects of your upbringing in both India and England and your parents' influence and how they've been incorporated into your life's work? Well, India was only the first three months of my life, so I think probably not a big influence. <laughs> I then, uh, in fact, my parents then came back to the UK briefly at the end of the war. My mother was Swiss, my father British, and they found it sort of depressing at the end of the war, you know, with the rationing and everything. And so, in fact, I was I spent the first few years of my life on a farm in Africa, in Kenya. Um, so, and then my mother brought us back. Um, because of the rise of Mau Mau. And I went to boarding school at the age of seven. I mean, first primary school in the UK, then boarding school. And I guess one of the big things about being a boarding school is you have to show a lot of initiative. I mean, you, you know, it, you're very much, um, you know, you don't have parents around. You know, you, you, and it, in many ways, it, it's two very contrasting things. I mean, one is it's unbelievably lonely at the beginning when you're a kid of seven. Um, but equally, you then develop a lot of entrepreneurial skills. I mean, the other thing that was really important about that school, and I was there from the age of seven to the age of 17, um, was 
it was a school that was really interested in much more than academic learning. So music was a very big piece of what went on there. I learned carpentry as well. So there were, you know, there were a lot of very different complementary skills. And mathematics was my big love as well, along with those. Um, so, I mean, really hard. It's always really hard to say what are the things that form what. I mean, what's responsible for what in life. Um, but I'm sure in some ways that had an influence. I mean, especially things like music and carpentry. I mean, carpentry was a big love as well. And in fact, when I was in the London Symphony Orchestra, met my second wife. We got married. We created an antique business. So, you know, know yeah. So again, you know, antique furniture is a big love for me. And because of the carpentry, I learned to do all the restoration work on the furniture. So again, it was that thing of having a very broad view of life that was very helpful from that school Um, but equally I think the pressures of going to a boarding school at the age of seven I mean I was incredibly shy, incredibly insecure, it took a long long time to get over that so you know the irony of where I ended up managing is it's the last thing in the world I'd ever have wanted to do Um, so, so I mean in many ways I can see where some of the things come from. Others, I really don't get it. Uh, you know, my mother um, was a fantastic musician, and our family had been musicians forever. And so, when I, in fact, became manager of London Symphony Orchestra by mistake, um, you, you know, when they couldn't find a manager, I went in temporarily and ended up doing it 21 years. My first conditions were two conditions. One, I never have to make speeches. Two, I never have to raise money. So here I am spending most of my life doing both of those. But the other thing that was interesting is my mother, she was practicing the cello until she died in her ni- early, you know, when she was just past 90. So for her, music was an absolute passion. But she was you know, in certain ways, even though she was proud of me becoming manager, she was also really upset because it was the end of the family line of, of people who are practicing musicians. Um, but I guess one of the things for me that was key about becoming manager and being able to do it was firstly the mathematics, um, you know, because the whole thing of analysing a business that's in trouble where there really, uh, you know, aren't the, the financial systems in place for you to be able to work it out. Um, but, but also having a role to play. I mean, the interesting thing is, I think it's a bit like an actor. An actor can be very shy, but if you give them a part and they can actually... Um, immerse themselves in the part. They become that character, and and the shy. You never know they were shy. And musicians the same way. Absolutely. Evgeny Kisin, for example, is yes. so shy, and yet on stage he's just yes, so he's high. a giant. Yeah. Uh, and totally outgoing, and, and gives everything as an artist. And I remember Claudio Bardo was like that when I was in the London Symphony. I mean, Claudio Bardo's rehearsals were unbelievably boring because nobody could hear what he was saying. He hardly said anything except louder, softer, quicker, slower, and yet the performances were utterly electric and quite extraordinary, you know, because he gave everything as a musician, so you're, you're right and so I think for me becoming manager, which was something I'd never ever have applied for in a million years, because we had the problem and I ended up in it I then had to effectively play the part if you're going to do it and, and I must say for the first two or three years I kept thinking all the time that somebody was going to say to me come on, you're play acting, you're not a real manager at all, this is just, you know, you're just trying to pretend to be a manager, and then eventually you kind of get immersed in something and, and, and you become it So you didn't have the aspiration to play on a larger stage at an early age in life? Not at all No, I was so shy, I mean I, I, you know, it was the last thing I wanted to do 
Well, can you tell us how you, you grew the international dimension of the London Symphony Orchestra? And you created quite a few programs that profoundly impacted the institution, uh, such as the Pacific Music Festival, the LSO Discovery Music Education Program, uh, the LSO Live CD label. Uh, where did your inspiration to take the LSO's productions to a new level come from, a higher level, given especially your lack of experience in these fields? Yeah, no experience yet. <laughs> Just to be truthful. Um, but I guess, I mean, one of the curious things is, playing in the orchestra for 14 years, I must have subliminally developed all sorts of ideas of what I wished the orchestra were. Um, and I didn't realise it until I walked in the door and became manager. And, you know, first on a temporary basis, as I say, and then ultimately that was um, confirmed. Um, but in fact, they did offer it to me after three months um, because they still couldn't find a manager. And I said no, because firstly, you don't know whether I'm the right person after three months, and I've no idea if I want to do it. So keep my job open in the cello section for a year, I'll do it for a year, and at the end of it, you'll know if you want to offer it to me and I'll know if I want to do it. So, I mean, that was also partly because it, that was a leap I'd never, ever been interested in. Um, but I, I guess there were... I mean, there's an crit absolutely critical thing which has been something that's run through my life, which is when you play in an orchestra, you're largely an artisan and not an artist. Now, I, my assumption about management is that it was dry, routine, everything else. Well... I've become an artist as a manager. And so, you know, the interesting thing is both of them were the antithesis of what I had actually expected. Um, and so, and I think that's one of the important things about working in management. That, I mean, not just if you're running an organisation, but everybody has a space as an individual. You can contribute individually. The problem in an orchestra is lots of people cannot. I mean, they're essentially, they've got to be a, an absolutely impeccable spoke in you know in the wheel um, you know and you can't stand out and you can't do something that's about your own creative input so you know these were all things that uh, you know are things that I've discovered but the, I guess when I was a player you know I felt very frustrated by a life that was very narrowly defined mm. um, you know and I also felt we had a broader responsibility to society so I I mean this was several years on but I proposed that we start an education program I mean initially Actually, we didn't know what that was, um, but we did a lot of research. But the, in those days, virtually no orchestras had education programs, so it was very much new territory. But the fact is, we we did research it, we did a lot of work, and we brought in people. You know, and, and in the end, we developed the talent, and and then we created a music education centre at the end of it as well. So, you know, in order for this to be an absolutely intrinsic part of who we were as an organisation, the LSO Live label was all about just being very aware that you are limited to the people you reach in the concert hall, that ultimately you should be making what you do, the greatest work that you do, available to the greatest possible audiences. So coming out of that philosophy came the, the record label. And I remember, you know, when I came up with the idea and, and, you know, we talked about it, my big worry was that if we started one, everybody would be in doing the same thing within months. In fact, it was years before anybody did it, which really surprised us, which gave us a huge first-mover advantage. And I think it's still by far the biggest orchestra-owned record label now. And I think the only one that really is, you know, very, very successful. And so, you know, but we did have a, a lot of time. And so I rushed everybody through. We, I mean, we went an insane pace putting it together. So we'd be, you know, we'd make sure we were the first in. And then we're just totally amazed that 
it, it all was quiet. Nothing else happened. Were you, were you unique in being frustrated among the orchestra as one of those spokes, as you said? Were you unique in being frustrated in no, that way? No, I think most orchestral players are. They, they don't necessarily articulate it as such. Um, but I think essentially it's not just orchestral players. It's anybody who goes into life has a really creative artistic streak and then cannot fulfill that in the work that they do. Now, the interesting thing about the education program, which was something I'd never thought of, was I was wanting to do it because of what we should be contributing to society and to people who had no access to music. It transformed the players because the players suddenly found they could be artists. They were functioning as an individual, making a genuine contribution to other people's lives as an individual, which is largely what you cannot do in an orchestra or don't do. And a new purpose to what they do as well. So it gave each of them, uh, everybody who became involved in education became, as you, to use your word, more purposeful. They really loved their music in a different way. And they brought that back to the orchestra. They became better players because they were much more motivated. So the irony was, it was one of those things where you do the thing that you believe in for the right reasons. There are always things that come back again, but you never should do it for those reasons. I mean, you know, it's, it's always being really clear about the why you do something. Has this been a template for many other orchestras? It has now, yeah. yes. I mean, most orchestras now do education work. I mean, it was a long time before that was the truth. That was the fact. Um, I mean, the early days, there were one, two, you know, and I remember being phoned several years. I mean, our education bro- program had been going for perhaps five, six years, and I had a phone call from one of the top orchestras in Europe, and they asked, why do we do education? And so I explained about, you know, our whole responsibility to society and so on, and, you know, that everybody should have the right of access to music. And they said, ah, but we, we don't need to do education because all our concerts sell out. And I said, it's got nothing to do with your concerts. Your responsibility is not just to people who buy tickets for your concerts. It's to people at large. They didn't get it. Now they do education, but that's 20 years later, 25 years later. So most people do, and to me... That's a big piece of why I'm very hopeful about the future of music, because I think now, nowadays, where it was completely novel, um, you know, when we started, which was, I guess, about 25 years ago, now most organisations do music education, most organisations feel they have a responsibility to their communities, and most major artists are involved in education work. So, you know, it's a completely different scenario. I I share your optimism about that, uh, but so often we read in the New York Times and in so many other newspapers and online and other places the decline of the orchestra, the the, uh, audience is getting older, the lack of involvement. So given all of these things that are happening, why is it that the the common thread, almost a cliche, is how tough the orchestras are having it and how almost irrelevant they're becoming because they're museum pieces. We hear the same pieces over and over again. You know, why is it that that's, that's a common uh, thought, given all the stuff that's going on? Well, look, firstly, there's the education piece we talked about that's going on. There's media, you know, all the opportunities for people to hear work in a way they never could before. Um, you, know, if you, you know, if you look at things like our academy fellowship program, um, which is all about nurturing um, through a two-year fellowship, the finest postgraduate musicians in America, and training them for lives in music that will be about performance 
governments, but about education, about working in hospitals, hospices, prisons, and so on. I mean, you know, things like this. It's a very, very different sort of musician now. It's not that everybody is, but there's a lot of musicians who are transforming society. So there's lots of reasons, apart from education, why I'm very optimistic. I mean, I think the confusion is between institutions and music. There are a lot of institution problems. That's not a problem with music. That's a, an institutional problem. And so, yes, I mean, we're in a fast-changing world. You have to develop with that world. You've got to be responsive to it. Orchestras are, are you know, are relatively inflexible models. Um, so I'd say they're not getting, you know, they're not disappearing. They won't. I mean, this, you know, the music that's written for orchestras is amongst the greatest creations of the human race. So, the, you know, I don't have the slightest worry about that music becoming dated or anything like that any more than a Rembrandt or a Titian or a Monet or whatever it is. You know, I mean, or Shakespeare. I mean, great art does not become dated. And, and they all sell out today. Yes. <laughs> These artists, Shakespeare. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so the fact they're just as... Rel- I mean, art has universal appeal an understanding of us as human beings. It's nothing to do... I mean, it can have relevance in a particular period, but it has universal relevance as well. So, therefore, to me, there's a lot of things institutions have to do to adapt, and and we are. I mean, you know, let's face it, now we're reaching 450,000 kids a year through our education programmes. It's colossal. You know, we've created the National Youth Orchestra. We've created this fellowship programme with Juilliard. I mean, so there's a huge number of... We've created these big festivals, you know, citywide festivals. So we've done a lot of things that really are transformational in terms of the role of an institution and what's more you mentioned the ageing of audiences our audience you know not only are the concerts selling incredibly well um, but our audience in a recent survey the average age has gone down by five years over the last six years see we never hear that either no so I mean the, the fact is I think it's all a function of what you do and education work um, you know, and so I don't have the slightest worry that classical music, and I mean, obviously, music in general, will have an ever-growing role in society. But we all have to play a part in that. It's not something that just happens by itself. Sure. And obviously, you're going to be doing these things to maintain the traditions of Carnegie Hall. Um, but at the same time, you're growing uh, from a solid base of of recognition and reverence. Uh, and just a quote of yours, I want to. Uh, mentioned for our listeners. I've always been a believer fundamentally that our job is about evolution, it's not about revolution. Can you expand on this thought and how it characterizes your management style here at the Hall? Well, uh, I mean, when I think about the London Symphony, I mean, that was obviously an organization in great trouble. Um, But I still felt, nonetheless, what we needed to be for the future should be rooted in our past and in our traditions and where the orchestra came from. So, the same in Carnegie Hall. I mean, Carnegie Hall has extraordinary traditions. I mean, obviously, that was a completely different management job because it was an organisation that was in fantastic health. It was a brilliant organisation. But the, So the question was, where next? Um, not how to save it. On the contrary, you know, it was in wonderful shape. Um, but the where next was, you know, saying, well, what can our broader role in society be? And, you know, our broader role in society is defined by many of the projects I've just spoken about, you know, like 
you know, expanding, really becoming totally outward-looking with all our education programs, sharing everything free. It's a whole, you know, it's central to our philosophy is that we share everything free. We help others to succeed. So if we can create world-class programs and share them with other organisations, there's an orchestra program called LinkUp that we now share with I think sixty over sixty orchestras, if not seventy. Um, you know, and around the U.S. now they're orchestras that could not afford to create world-class education resources. We give it to them. We help them train the teachers, train um, you know, train the musicians, train people to deliver it, and so they're delivering world-class education programming within their own communities. So that can only be a contribution to the future of music. So, you know, everything we look at is through the lens of, firstly, where did Carnegie Hall come from? What, you know, so therefore, where should it grow in the future? Um, Out of its roots. Um, But secondly, in the broadest sense, how does it contribute to the future of music and people's lives through music? And these partnerships are are key. And there seems to be an insistence in our culture, uh, and as you've noted before, particularly in New York City, of institutions looking to maintain their own unique identities, their own inherent identities, uh, which stimulates collaboration between various kinds of groups and opera houses, mm-hmm. orchestras, and this kind of thing. And so, what sets Carnegie Hall apart in this regard? Is it is it you and your vision, or is there is there something else that others can benefit from who don't have access to you? Well, look. In the end, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like values. I mean, my view about values is you have to develop your own and it's about who you are as a human being or it's about who you are as an institution so in other words no other institution should be trying to do what Carnegie Hall's doing because they've got to think what is relevant and meaningful for them and where do they come from and what are their roots and their history and how do they use those as the platform for the future and it's a bit like the Roosevelt saying at the Natural History Museum which is keep your feet on the ground your eyes on the stars yes. you know so one, you know, I always think of that as being know where and understand where your roots are but always be looking to the future so your roots are nothing that holds you back they are the, the platform from which you build the future so I guess that's the philosophy for me um, I think you know to me the most important thing is that one asks the right questions in life and when I first arrived here I remember we'd sit down for meetings and almost every meeting somebody would say what's best for Carnegie Hall and I'd always say it's the wrong question. The only question we should ask is what's best for the contribution can, you know, Carnegie Hall can make to people's lives through music. If we answer that correctly, we'll know what's best for Carnegie Hall. And so I think one of the biggest problems, I think, with a lot of institutions is because they're worried about their future, they become inward-looking, they become self-serving, and then you don't have a future None of us are self-serving. If we try and serve ourselves, we shouldn't exist. We die I mean, alone. Yes. You know, we should be serving society. We should be serving people's lives. And so I remember when we started the, the festivals, the, the festivals all around the city. Uh, you know, I, I raised this idea, and everybody said there's no point um, talking to people because New York organizations don't work together because they're also competitive over funding and so on. So I nonetheless went to visit you know, various institutions and floated the idea, and everybody said, fantastic, wonderful, we'd love to work with you. So sometimes it's making sure you keep asking the questions, you know, and you don't take no for an answer. The persistence. Yes, it's persistence. But I think in the end everybody's got to decide what they exist for. I mean, we have a very clear view of where we're going. And I think mission and, you know, the whole thing of your purpose uh, 
is something in the end you evolve as a team. Um, so, you know, we really talk about this a lot and we've spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, but where Carnegie Hall is growing has to be something that's organic to the institution, but organic to the people who work here. But then there's also a, a cycle about that because the fact is you've got to attract the people who believe in the mission um, you know so but I think that's a sort of self-perpetuating virtuous circle if you can get onto it um, you know a lot of people can't get onto it because they are either not 100% clear where they're going um, you know or else it's defensive you know it's how do we save ourselves rather than actually how do we look outwards and contribute and we look at so many examples of orchestras looking to save themselves or going through all kinds of management labor strife and where does it ultimately lead them? And then subscribers, they drop off, and then they just they get into a hole, and often they can't get out of it. Well, there's a very good book called Obliquity, which is, you know, that everything, you know, where his premise, which I completely agree with, is that everything in life is oblique. If you try and save yourself, the chances are you will destroy yourself. If you try and avoid risk, that's probably the greatest risk you can ever take. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, if you want to get more young audiences, don't think about how you get more young audiences. Think about how you engage people with music. Um, so, I mean, my whole philosophy is it's not about us serving ourselves either as individuals or as an institution. It's about how we serve. And if you do that, then you are indispensable to society, but you don't do it to become indispensable to society. You do it because it matters. It's the byproduct. Yes. So I think all of these things, they're oblique. And you've got to understand that if you, you know, do the things that are you know, self-serving in any way, whether it's about developing brand, whether it's about maximizing revenues off certain things, you know, because people have said, why don't you sell all your education programs instead of giving them away? Our view is we're thinking about the future of music, not making a few dollars more. But ironically, we've then had donations to support us doing that, which were actually worth more than if we'd sold the programs. So, uh, you know, but on the other hand, you don't do it because you know you'll get donations um, that will actually give you more money. You do it because you believe in it and because it's actually what you should be doing. And, and then you have to make the rest work. So my sort of philosophy of money follows vision is you always think about what it is you believe in, what you want to do and how you do it. And then, of course, you've got to be a rigorous business about how you chase the money to make all that happen. But you can inspire people. If you're doing something amazing, if you're doing something that's self-serving, it's not inspiring, apart from anything. Why would people give you money? And why would people give you money for things that are good rather than extraordinary? You have to go for the extraordinary. So, I mean, these are all, part, these are all central to our philosophy. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We 
now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Clive Gillinson, Executive and Artistic Director of Carnegie Hall. And so many organizations can benefit from these kinds of partnerships, whether they're community organizations, orchestras, uh, chamber groups, whatever it happens to be, they can really benefit from these partnerships. Absolutely. So, but why, A, do they not generally go after them, and B, why do they often founder? Once they get started, they've got great ideas, and then a few months or a few years later, it just goes by the wayside. So is there something in particular that you can point to that they're missing? Well... Uh, Look, the first thing is a bit like we were talking before about mission or purpose. A lot of people say, let's make some partnerships. That has, that's no purpose whatsoever. You know, so a lot of people will be thinking about making partnerships. We don't think about making partnerships. We think about seeking to do something that we think is really important. Now, the next question is, how you do you do it in the best possible way? If a partnership is the way of delivering that more importantly, more excitingly, more, you know, so that it affects more people, then a partnership is relevant. So that's one piece, is being totally mission-driven um, rather than sort of model-driven. And a lot of people are model-driven, and that never, ever works. Um, the other piece is company culture. And, I mean, we had one partnership that we tried, um, which I obviously won't say what it was. It was a catastrophe. The reason it was a catastrophe was because the culture of the two organizations was totally different so we would say this is you know we, and we spoke and the hardest thing about it is we all spoke the same words so we all talked about quality about challenge about exploration we talked about all the things we believe in they talked about them. we thought fantastic brilliant partner the fact is we meant different things when we said something had to be terrific um, and uh, what we were doing just wasn't good enough as, a par as partners, it just wasn't good enough. They thought it was absolutely fine. So in the end, it was completely impossible because when you have different values, you cannot have a partnership. So that was a tough lesson we learned um, on that particular project. So, so I think it's the two big things. You know, one is be clear about the purpose and only think about partnership in relation to delivering the purpose. Um, the other is you can only partner with organizations that share your values because otherwise it's a total nightmare. Right. And just talking about partnerships, uh, some of the programs you initiated at Carnegie Hall. So tell us about your partnership with the Juilliard School and the New York Department of Education, uh, specifically for the ensemble ACJW, which mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, the Academy. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Very successful partnership. Obviously. It's a great partnership. Yeah. It really is. I mean, the, you know, the nice thing is it's not great institutionally only. It's great because, I mean, Joseph Polisi here and Juilliard and I are great friends now. So, I mean, it was, it was just really nice. But when I came here, one of the first things I learned was that there's 15,000 music graduates every year in America and 150 jobs in orchestras. So that was one piece. The other piece was my life at the LSO in, in music had told me that musicians who just play in orchestras and have, you know, very narrowly defined lives in general are frustrated musicians. Then, you know, they don't actually develop and grow throughout their lives as musicians or as people. Very tough to do that. Um, and, and relatively unusual. And so the combination of those things, I went to the board then with a concept, which was Assembly ACGW, the academy at the time. Um, I went to them with this concept and you know, as an idea. They loved the concept. And it was at the same time, it was my first board meeting. I went with that concept and I went with the the big national and international festivals. Um, and 
they loved the idea of the ensemble ACJW and I said I felt in order to do it the best way we could do it was to partner with Juilliard because then we'd have the best the greatest performance institution and the greatest education institution in music in the world frankly um, right working up the together from each other. yes yeah. right up the street for each other but working together so that what you were doing you know and again this for me is an absolutely fundamental about the way we look at things is creating a magnet for talent I mean the, the, the ensemble only has validity if you get the best players and the best possible people. It's no good getting people who are okay doing education work and doing all of this stuff. I mean, they've got to be great players, but they've got to be people who really will do a superb job in every way. So the combination um, was the magnet. So I went to see Joseph and floated the idea to him. He loved it, and from that moment we were partners in developing it. So that's how it came about. I remember then, you know, when we fully developed the concept... Um, you know, and as well as a model for how we were going to make it work financially, I then went to see Joel Klein, who was Chancellor for Education, and told him about the project. And we talked for about an hour, and at the end he said, we want to be partners in this. After an so, hour? Yeah. So, I, And to me that was typical of America and wouldn't happen anywhere else in the world. And it, it. it was brilliant. Um, but the other thing that was brilliant was going to that first board meeting with the festivals and with what was the academy at the beginning which is a two year fellowship for the finest postgraduate musicians in America to train them to do all this breadth of work as well as be great performers I went to the board with these two ideas and a number of trustees said look great ideas Clive fantastic but over ambitious we should just do one at a time and so I, I just said well I'll tell you what I will would you accept if I go and see every single person who has any reservations about us doing them at the same time I'll go and see them if I can't persuade them, we'll do one at a time. The first person I went to had his office 10 minutes walk away. We spent an hour talking. At the end, he said, look, Clive, I think they're great projects. I'd hate you to have wasted all your time coming this far, 10 minutes walk. Um, and here's half a million dollars to get you on your way. Um, the second one, you know, I met for lunch one of our trustees who had equal reservations. At the end of the lunch, she'd given us a million dollars to help us on our way. So in other words, the two things were flying. Now, what they'd done was exactly what every trustee should do, which is you test and you really make sure you've pressed to the, you know, the toughest degree the, you know, the whole thing of, do you have the ability to do it? Do you have the strategy? Do you, you know, is the mission one we share? But once they pressed it they, uh, and felt they believed in it, they then said, we'll back it. So, I mean, again, you know, the whole thing was a story of, a, you know, one of the huge strengths of America. And you, you mentioned about the uh, the thematic festivals, mm -hmm. and they cover so many different art forms. W was that uh, an initiative that was um, that came to you soon after the idea? Was that something that you wanted to do from the beginning to encompass many no, different? I art wanted forms? to do it from the beginning because, and in fact, we appointed somebody. I hadn't even started yet, but I asked for the appointment of somebody to manage festivals before I arrived because I knew before that. you arrived here yes um, because well it was a year before I took up the job because my kids were at university and the, my twins mm -hmm. and I wouldn't start until they'd left university I mean I didn't want to upset their their education in any form so so in fact Carnegie Hall very kindly waited a year for me to start and during that year they I used to you know have continual conversations with them all the time about you know developing some of the ideas so that when I arrived I wouldn't be just starting from square one and one of the things was I wanted to do that now we'd done a lot of music festivals at the LSO but not 
covering the spectrum of the arts in general. But I felt here we had an institution where one could actually think much bigger. And so it was Carnegie Hall that actually gave one the opportunity to do something quite different, and its position in the city as well. And I think to have Carnegie Hall going around and saying, do you want to be part of a major festival, has a lot of power. And so I think people responded as well because of the stature of this institution. And what's the next festival coming up? Um, Well, we've just finished a big festival around Vienna, and the next one is South Africa, called Ubuntu. And this one, the reason we timed it in this way, and, you know, we've wanted to do South Africa for a long time, but the reason for the timing is it's the 20th anniversary of majority rule. And where do you see these kinds of activities uh, going in the future? Is this going to be sustained and spread beyond Carnegie Hall? Is, Is this something that you've already seen or you expect to see throughout the country and throughout the world? Well, look, I mean, I, I never feel it's our job to suggest to anybody what they do, to, you know, to think we can mentor anybody, to think we can advise anybody. I just feel all we can do is lead by example. We should do what we believe in. If other people love the idea and either want to work with us or want to copy ideas, perfect. Uh, you know, and it's a bit like Lenny Bernstein once said, you know, everybody copy, everybody copies. Just make sure you, you copy brilliantly. <laughs> you know, you know, brilliant programs. Um, you, you know, so everybody copies. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, and, you know, but my view is, I, look, I thought the Ensemble ACJW, I thought similar projects would pop up elsewhere. They haven't so far. I mean, just in the same way as I thought LSO Live would be imitated very quickly. But to my mind, it doesn't matter. I mean, all that matters is we do the maximum we can do to contribute to people's lives. And, you know, I think we, we do have an influence because it's Carnegie Hall. I think it does have an influence on how other people think. Um, you know, I hope we're an important piece in the, the whole ecology of how education is growing in the country and internationally. And, you know, I think But the most important thing is we just do what we believe in. And, I mean, on the thing with the festivals here, I mean, other people do do festivals, but I mean, some of them probably did festivals before, I don't know. Uh, but certainly the quality of the institutions wanting to participate here is extraordinary. I mean, it's all the great institutions are part of the festivals, but every festival, you only choose the institutions that are relatively... Yeah, that relate to that festival. Um, you know, we don't work with the same partners every year sure. because it's obviously completely different for Vienna than it is for South Africa, um, for example. Um, but, I mean, in terms of the future, what we're trying to do all the time is just tell utterly fascinating, important stories. And, you know, South Africa's a great story, you know, the Vienna. Vienna. I mean, they're all important stories. And you want to just involve people in compelling journeys of discovery. And, again, it relates a little bit to what, to me, is a fundamental tenet of philosophy that lies behind a lot of what we're doing, which is everybody should grow until the last day of their life. Um, everybody should be exploring and growing and, and, you know, curious. You know, to me, curiosity is one of the most important things that exists in life. I read a quote by being. Pierre Boulez when I was a teenager, and he just said, without curiosity, you die. And I always remember Absolutely. that particular quote by yes. Boulez. Yeah. Well, the one I use, I mean, a, a similar one by Einstein, which, you know, when you think one of the greatest minds of all time. And Einstein said, his quote was, 
I had, I had no particular talents, just an insatiable curiosity. You know, so he knew that was the most important thing. I mean, with all his staggering talents, he knew curiosity was the most important one. And so things like the festivals are about getting people to explore areas they would never otherwise explore because you've got trusted curators, people who would normally just go to classical symphonic concerts or to jazz or to world music or to dance or theatre or whatever. Through creating this journey of exploration, people start exploring across the field. So we find lots of our partners. I mean, the great thing is everybody benefits because of coming under this umbrella of a festival. So lots of partners say, yes, I'd only have had a quarter full hall for this event, you know, which is part of the festival. If we hadn't done it as part of the festival, it would be 25%. When it was in the festival, we were turning people away at the door. Because everybody was exploring. So, you know, I think we've got a bigger role to play. It's what a lot of our education work is about. I mean, all the time at the root of it is not teaching. It's engaging the kids with learning and understanding and being involved in music and making music, but also stimulating curiosity. So curiosity is the thread that runs through everything. Yeah, yeah. And uh, young people, uh, to, to get them to look outward, how do we foster a desire in young people to get them to look outward? Obviously, we've got these education programs. Uh, but, you know, we can impact large or small communities uh, across the board. Uh, so especially given the increasing competitiveness to get ahead in today's world, um, family demands, all kinds of things like this, how do we get young people to look outward these days? In the end, education has to be fascinating. I mean, when one thinks back to you know the way I was brought up, probably the way you were brought up, um, so much education is linear, and it's about a single answer, you're right or you're wrong. Um, that's not creative, that doesn't generate curiosity at all you know and the interesting thing is probably the most interesting creative kids are the ones who don't necessarily do very well in that because they'll come up with 10 answers um, you know or a bunch of questions and so I think you know education needs to change a lot and you know it's it's actually nurturing curiosity that is the most important thing and you do that so that everything you're involved in learning is exciting and fun and engaging and you happen to be learning rather than you will now learn and and so I think education is going to change immeasurably in the years to come and, and yet with the uh, the laws like no child left behind the focus is on science and math and less on the music and the creative things so when so much of the focus in schools is getting the grades burnishing the high school resumes getting into good colleges, having good careers, getting to go to houses, and so on and so on. Um, so how do we uh, get across all of the specific benefits of music that have been proven to directly uh, benefit achievement, uh, uh, discipline, personal growth, all of these things that mm -hmm. music provides? Given these other demands, how do, we, how do we get across to people the benefits of music that then inform and positively impact all these other things that the schools are focusing on? Well, look, firstly, I think there's misconceptions from where we're starting. You know, very often people talk about, you know, as though maths and sciences and things are not creative. They're unbelievably creative. So, you know, it's not that music and the arts are the only creative areas. So, I, I, you know, I think what's important is that if one teaches things in the right way, almost everything can be creative. Um, and a fascinating exploration. So, you know, so a lot of the challenge is actually in the way things are taught, not in the subjects. Um, but in general terms, in terms of the role of music or the arts in general in society, again, all we can do is the combination 
of doing all we can ourselves to change that picture and contribute meaningfully, um, and lobbying and trying to you know change minds, um, you know, and engage people with understanding the importance. And it's not a question of one or the other. I mean, it, it's got to be science. It got, it's got to be mathematics. It's got to be reading and literature and so on. But it's also got to be the arts um, because those. You know, can develop the human being in a, in a way the others can't on their own. Do you find that teachers are receptive to that? I think the difficulty with it is the more creative the teaching, the harder it is to be a teacher. Um, you know, that's the challenge. It's much easier if you can teach by rote. So and, and yet we'll, it's the death of learning. Yes, it's precisely. It's horrible. So we will, in a way, we make it, all of us, you know, in terms of our expectations of what education needs to be in the 21st century, it's going to be much harder for teachers because much more will be expected of them. They've got to be much more open. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a really demanding time. But I think, I mean, the thing that fascinates me is when you just think about it, you virtually never meet a child that doesn't have curiosity. Endless adults don't. I mean, you know, huge number. I mean, really large. I mean, huge percentages of adults have no curiosity. So, in other words, it's not something we've got to invent. It's something we've been killing. So it exists anyway. It's it's a natural human. Uh, I think you know, it's natural for human beings to to be curious, to have curiosity. So really, our education has got to complement that and nurture it, rather than killing it. And along these lines, uh, just to mention to our listeners. Carnegie Hall will complete its comprehensive Studio Towers renovations project in the fall of 2014, and that'll add new inspirational spaces dedicated to music education on the upper floors of the hall. And then the newly added Resnick Education Wing will be home to the extensive education and community programs created by the WOW Music Institute. So things like this, hopefully people will be able to point to that and then use them, take advantage of them, maybe use them as templates for their own communities, their own areas, their own cities. New York is hardly the only big city in this country. So, Absolutely. So hopefully other people will be able to pick up on that. Well, Carnegie Hall is a somewhat larger instrument than the cello. So, <laughs> That's for sure. So, <laughs> Mind you, it was designed by a cellist. I, I know. <laughs> yes, I'm <aware> so... <laughs> What's the most difficult aspect of your job as executive director here? Wow. And and do you um, do you find change easier or hard to come by here? As a second question. Right. Well, let me deal with that first. Um, when I started, it was a relatively uh, people were scared of change. Um, you know, there'd been a lot of bumps, there'd been a lot of problems, and I think so people were actually rather nervous of change. So it's taken quite a while to nurture a culture which embraces change. I mean, but now I'd say, you know, our team, I mean, everybody loves challenge, everybody loves to explore new ideas, um, you know, and I think the board do as well. So, you know, now everybody understands and shares just how important that is and that we must always be growing. We can never, ever be comfortable and stand still. And there's the curiosity piece again. Again, absolutely. And it, you know, now it's, I'd say it's totally part of our culture. I mean, it's the way our staff feel. It's, so these things are all, you know, you, I mean, you have to develop the momentum in the first place. But once you've developed it, it becomes self-perpetuating because the reality is the people who want to come and work here are the people who are attracted by who we are now. So, you know, they're always, it's always very difficult to, 
institute change at the beginning because you've you've got another model that was attracting people. So, but now I'd say this is genuinely a model that attracts people who want you know who really want to change the world, um, and. That's why trustees join us now as well. I mean, most of the trustees come because they love that. So, you know, so in other words, it's getting built into the the sort of the fabric of the body. Um, Now, what's the hardest thing? I guess it's growing old and knowing there's a limit to how much I can be able to do here. (laughs) Or growing older, not old. Um, (laughs) Because there is uh, the possibilities here. And the whole world shares that thought. Um, I mean, it's limitless. This place, you know, what we can do is limitless. And I guess, you know, when I first went into management, I was whatever it was, um, 38. And, you know, then it just seems as though you've got forever. Um, when you're 68, you haven't got forever. And so I guess it's thinking about, you know, how do we really use this time um, to make the greatest possible contribution that this organisation can make? Because this is an organisation, to me, that can make a greater contribution to music and the future of music than any other in the world. And it's how do we really make sure that's what we do. And are there initiatives or things coming up that uh, in the next couple of years that you'd like to highlight, you'd like to mention for our... Our listeners. Well, uh, what we're having to do at the moment, for the next year, year and a half, because the Studio Towers Education Centre, all of this project is coming you know, on, on tap, it's a complete change of business model. So for the next year, year and a half, maybe two years, we're having to look in a different way at development because we feel we can't be taking on huge new projects. I mean, we took on this National Youth Orchestra last year, which, again, is a huge project. I mean, it's roughly $2 million a year to run run that. But it's a transformational project, again, um, huge and really important, and it, it has a big impact on the future of music in this country. So what we're going to do over the next year, year and a half, is... Think about how do we use everything that we already do to create greater benefit. So, you know, are there other ways we can leverage the benefits out of all we do so that more people are affected, there's a greater contribution to people's lives through them and so on. So that's the next step. And it also means it gives us a little time to bed down um, the education centre because however much you have a theory about what something's going to be. It's always different when it happens. So we, we just need to make sure that all works out. We have to you know, stabilise the revenue model because the fact is we've got to drive considerable catering revenues out of those new spaces in order to help to fund all the additional costs we've incurred in doing it. So I'd say in that sense there's a slight hiatus um, but it's a hiatus in which we're thinking beyond. And, you know, it's not that we've stopped thinking, um, but we are stopping spending, you know, expanding the budget and extending what we do in a major way. Um, but then, unquestionably, after that, once we know we've bedded down the new model, then there will be major projects, but I can't tell you what, because, you know, until we're ready, we don't announce anything. Understood. Well, we're very much looking forward to those, uh, those projects. And uh, for our listeners, the best way to learn more about Carnegie Hall is through carnegiehall.org. And uh, listeners can click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. And Clive, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I mean, I love talking to you. It's great. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.